Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation 20. I'm only going to do three verses, but nonetheless, it's going to be a long audio, I think, because it covers one of the most difficult theological problems in the Scripture, which is the problem of the millennium. Millennial views divide Christians of theological orientation, and they have for 2,000 years. I'm going to give you my views on it. I report, you decide. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, we've had the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've had Jesus conquering on a white horse. And I take that as talking about the establishment of the New Covenant Church. And it's spread as Jesus conquers. Spreads his gospel all throughout the world. And I think that fits right in here with Revelation 20. Because I'm going to take the view that the millennium is between the first and second advents. It's talking about the church age and when the Satan is bound so that the gospel can spread. Which fits right in with the idea of Jesus conquering on a white horse as the gospel is spread. So we start now in Revelation 20, verse 1, that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. That angel is probably Jesus, because who has the authority over the abyss and those in it? Well, that would be Jesus. He had a key, and a key means the authority you can lock and unlock. The abyss, of course, is hell. The chain in his hand that Jesus is holding is because he's getting ready to bind the devil, chain him up. Now, this key of the abyss that Jesus had, we need to note that Satan was briefly given the key to the abyss in Revelation 9.1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft of the abyss was given to him. The key to the abyss that was given to him. The star that fell was the devil. And of course, the devil then let a lot of locusts, also known as demons, out of the pit. Well, but Jesus ultimately has the keys that lock and unlock that abyss he has the keys of death and Hades, Revelation 1, verse 18. The living one, that's Jesus. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever. He was crucified, but now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. The reason he can lock and unlock death is because he conquered death. He was in the grave and came out of it. All right, so Jesus has a great chain in his hand, the key to the abyss, because he's going to go down there. He's going to find the devil, unlock the abyss, go down there to into hell, and wrap the chain around Jesus, around Satan. Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. And he, that's Jesus, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, of course, I often wonder, I think about this vision, how does John know that the devil was bound for a thousand years? He saw a picture of Jesus chaining the dragon up. So, I don't know how he knows that except through Revelation. But anyway, the devil's bound for a thousand years. And Jesus threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed over sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these, he must be released for a short time. All right, now, Satan is bound. How is he bound? He's bound spiritually, not literally. Who would think that an angel put a physical chain or Jesus put a physical chain around Satan, who was a spiritual being? Of course not. These are metaphors, folks, and a vision, symbols and a vision. So Satan is bound spiritually, and how is he bound? He's bound concerning a particular thing, verse 3, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. It doesn't mean he was bound so that he can't scare people watching horror movies or make people horrified of their dreams or possess people who are into demonism and witchcraft. Yeah, the devil can do all that individually if you let him, which is a stupid thing to do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what John is talking about here. He's talking about the nations are bound for a thousand years, which means the spread of the gospel to all the world today can be affected because the devil has been bound. He can't stop the spread of the gospel. 
And as a matter of fact, the spread of the gospel to all the world since John wrote that book in Revelation proves that the devil's been bound. When you go out and witness to somebody, the devil cannot snatch somebody who's in the elect away from Jesus's salvation. He can't do it. So we need that gives us confidence when we witness. If this person's in the elect, he's going to get saved. So just witness to him. I don't care how much grief he's given you or how much static he's given you. Satan is bound. He can't stand the gospel spreading. I mean, just look. Look at India. Look at China. Now, let's look at some scriptures that show that Satan is bound during the church age. And remember, the millennium, according to my view, according to the non-premill view, the millennium is between the first and the second advents, the church age. And let's see how the Satan is bound. That thousand years is the church age. And let's see how the scriptures show that Satan is bound during the church age. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking. I will put hostility between you, the devil, and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring, that's the children of the devil, the evil ones in the world, and her offspring, that's Jesus. He will strike your head. The devil will hit you in the, will hit, the, Jesus will hit the devil in the head, and that's what means he'll kill him. You strike somebody in the head, that kind of takes him out. You, the devil, will strike his, Jesus' heel. In other words, it could be a little slight wound on the heel when Jesus is crucified, but he's going to rise again, and that's going to be the end of the devil, because then when he rises, he's going to strike the devil in the head. And all that happened at the first coming, at the crucifixion and resurrection. The devil is bound. Jesus is going to strike his head. Matthew 12, 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Now, there's that word bind, bound. The strong man is the devil. Oh, the devil is bound in Matthew 12, 29. Then he will plunder his house. Well, when did Jesus bind the devil? Well, the context of this passage in Matthew 12, 29 shows that Jesus did the binding. It showed that the kingdom was there then when Jesus was speaking. Verse 28 of Matthew 12. If I, Jesus speaking, if I, Jesus, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's your millennial kingdom, folks, when Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God because the devil is bound in the inter-advent period. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 19. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's to them is the disciple that he met after his resurrection up in Galilee. Jesus tells them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, I've got all authority now, not the devil. So you go out and baptize the nations. Now remember, this is Jesus and 12 people. 12, well actually it was 11 at the time, because Judas had bailed out. So 11 Fishermen started the church that has spread all over the world. That proves to me, folks, the devil was bound because all authority had been given to Jesus. Luke 10, verses 18 and 19. He said to them, this was to one of his band of apostles that he had sent out, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's when they went out and they cast out demons and healed the sick. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. Snakes and scorpions are your typical symbols for demons. I've given you, the disciples, authority to trample on them. And folks, this was before the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. Even more so after Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We can trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. A lot of times in China, there would be these new converts that I'd have to deal with. And sooner or later, they're talking about demons. I had one that was talking about demon looking at her through the window and all this kind of stuff. Well, she was living in an apartment where there was some horrible animistic type religion, wasn't even Buddhism, it was worse than that. And it was her grandmother, and her grandmother was offering sacrifices, animal, uh, not animal, but uh, food sacrifices to these demons, and she was a piece of work. And naturally, 
this young convert was scared of demons. And I said, hey, the demons are scared of you. You don't need to be scared of the demons. I tell them that all the time. It's absolutely true. We have authority over the demons. We need to remember that and not be scared of them. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. The rule of this world is Satan, and he is cast out, which means cast down, which means he ain't got no authority anymore in the world. And that's now. When is now? John 12, 31, that's, when did John write? In the, I don't know, in the first century somewhere? Well, actually, and he's re re relating Jesus speaking, and Jesus is saying, now is the judgment of the world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. So note that the judgment of Satan here is directly connected with the evangelism of nations. Now we're going to cast the demon out by winning the world to Christ, Colossians 2.15. He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rules and authorities, that's the demons, and disgraced them publicly on the cross. He triumphed over them in him. So on the cross when he rose, oh, I say on the cross, I, I guess I should say when he rose again from the dead, he disarmed them. And that was it, folks. He's triumphing over the demons ever since that resurrection. Hebrews 2.14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Through Jesus' death, Jesus might destroy the devil. The devil is rendered powerless at the time of Jesus' death. Something that is bound is powerless. 1 John 3.8. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. We have the power and the ability and the command and the authority to destroy the devil's works. All evil, we need to destroy it. Jude 1, 6, And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the, deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now, the judgment on the great day, I'm assuming, is at the end of the world. But before that, before they're totally judged and thrown into the lake of fire, they're kept in eternal chains. There's still demonic activity on earth, but they're chained from stopping the spread of the gospel to the nations. So that's the good news. Now, of course, if you're a pre-mill type, you believe that the devil is bound in the millennium and things get real nice up there. But I don't know how you get around all these verses that I just said where it says that the devil is bound during the inter-advent period. If you don't believe that the millennium is the inter-advent period, well, that's all right. But you've got to believe the devil's bound because the scriptures clearly says so. The scriptures I just read to you. Now let's go to the thousand years. That's the millennium. Millennium means a thousand. And this is where it's going to get fun. Now, it's really interesting that so much theology... Theological ink has been spilled over this term millennium. This is the only place right here, Revelation 23, in this passage here, where the term, well, 20, verse 2 and 3, where the term millennium is used. Nowhere else in the scriptures is used, and yet people will move heaven and earth to convince you of their position on the millennium. Well, I guess I'll do the same thing, but I'm not going to be too bent out of shape about it if you don't end up agreeing with what I agree, with what I come down with, but... It's interesting that such an important doctrine is only mentioned twice. The word itself, at least, is only mentioned twice in Scripture. Now, just because it's only mentioned twice, I don't mean to poo-poo the idea of how important the millennium is. It is important. It's because it, it goes to your philosophy of history, and that means how you're going to live your life. But coming to a position on the millennium, in my opinion, is more important than coming to a conclusion on when the tribulation occurs. I believe it was right before 8070, between 30 and 70 A.D., the pre-trib rapturists, the Hal Lindsay's of this world, believe it happens at the end of time, right before the thousand-year millennium, seven years before then. 
And I believe that the position you end up believing on the millennium is even more important than whether you are a preterist, a starist, or a futurist in your view of the timing of eschatological events. And let me make a side note here. Millennial views aren't directly tied to that preterist, historicist, futurist debate. I'm a preterist, an orthodox preterist. That does not automatically preclude me from being pre-mill. There is no logical connection. Not that I've ever seen. I've looked, and I don't think there's any connection. But as a practical matter, preterists almost never pre-mill. And there's a reason for that. Most pre-mills assume it takes a it takes a series of cataclysmic events to usher in the millennium at the end of time. And pre-mills believe the millennium, the so-called millennium, is in the future at the end of time. So pre-mills believe that cataclysmic events must be in the future to set the stage for the millennium. But preterists say that all those cataclysmic events that we see in Revelation, as I've been teaching in the book of Revelation, happen just around AD 70, and that the millennium is in our advent. So Post-millennialism, and, and I guess amillennialism too, non-premillennialism fits better with an orthodox preterist view of the timing of the events of eschatology. But it's not logical. It's just, it tends to push you that way, but it's not absolutely logically impossible for you, if you're a preterist, to be a pre-mill. Now, what is the symbolism here? I'm assuming it's a symbolic. It's not literal. Ten is a number indicating meaningness or divine fullness, or lots of, divine completion. So if you got, and anytime you have an exponential operation on 10, that means you got even more, 10 times 10 times 10. So the millennium is a whole bunch, a whole bunch of years. So Now, it may take a million years to finally crunch Satan. I have no idea how long the inter-advent period is going to be, but I do not believe, well, it can't be literally a thousand years. It's already been 2,000 years. It's not meant to be literal, unless you're a pre-mill. Now, they take it literally. They take it absolutely a thousand years. Here's an example of how you can take a thousand and it can't be literal. You know that verse that says, I don't have the site here, but the verse that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean he doesn't own the cattle on the thousandth and first hill? Of course not. It just means there's a bunch of hills out there and God owns the cattle. And it means it's all the hills on the earth that he owns. He owns all the cattle, not just a thousand. So you can't take that thousand literally like so many people unfortunately do. Now, there's two basic views of the millennium. The pre-mill view, which is unfortunately the majority view, and the non-pre-mill view, I call it non-pre-mill view, that is divided between amills and post-mills. And if you look at the amill and post-mill position, they are close on timing of the millennium, so close that I'm going to lump them together. Now, they do disagree uh, somewhat on the nature of the millennium, Amills tend to be futurist and pessimistic about what things are going to be like here in, in the church age between the first and second advent, whereas post-mills tend to be more optimistic. But as far as the timing is concerned, they're the same. And so let's look at the timing. First of all, let's take the pre-mill view. The timing is this. Jesus came the first time. That's the first advent. Then we have the age of the church all the way until Jesus comes back the second time. That's the second advent. Then after he comes back, there's a millennium. That's why it's called the pre-mill position, because Jesus' return at the second advent is pre-millennium. It comes before, his return comes before the millennium. Now, the pre-mill, what is there, what do they say about the nature of the millennium? Well, it's a thousand years long, literally. The millennium is better than earth, but not as good as heaven. Like, you can look at it this way. The millennium is a step up from the earth on the way to heaven, just like purgatory is a step down from earth on the way to hell. 
So sin will be severely limited in this 1,000-year period. It won't be entirely done away with. Now, one passage, a key passage in eschatology that the pre-mills point to a lot is Isaiah 65, 19-25. This is supposed to be a description of the millennium. Now, as I read this, remember that non-pre-mills will say this is a description of the church age, and it's symbolic. much of it is symbolic of good things that happen to the church age as Jesus rolls back the works of the devil while the devil is bound. The pre-mills say, no, this is the age of the millennium after Jesus returns. Isaiah 65, 19 through 25. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, if you use that hyperliteral hermeneutic that pre-mills tend to use, they say, oh, the wolf and lamb feeding together. That ain't going to happen on this earth. That's got to be in the millennium where everything's nice. So here's some examples of the limitation of sin from that passage I just read. There'll be no more crying, verse 19. People will have a long life in verse 20. There'll be domestic security and peace in verses 21 and 22. People's descendants will be blessed in verse 23. There will be instant communication with God in verse 24. Nature will no longer be red with tooth and claw. That's because the lion and the lamb are laying down with each other. And the devil will, and all of this happens because the devil is bound, as we've talked about. Well, I talked about the devil being bound now in, in the inner advent period, but the pre-mills say the devil is bound in the millennium. Now, even though the devil is bound, according to pre-mill theorists, the devil is not completely bound because some sins still exist. In that passage I just read from Isaiah 65, we find out that people die. Isaiah 65:20. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live a few, only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old would be born as a young man. So somebody's going to die. He might live a long time, but he's still going to die. And the one who misses 100 years, there's somebody who's going to die before 100 years. He will be considered cursed. Oh, you mean somebody in the millennium is going to be considered cursed? So you see, things are not completely rosy in the millennium. In fact, we're still going to have war in the millennium. We don't see this in Isaiah 65, but we see this in the Gog and Magog rebellion mentioned in Revelation 27 through 10, which we'll take up in the next audio, those four verses read this way. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So you see, there's still going to be a huge battle at the end of the millennium. So things are good, but they're not perfect, according to the pre-mills. And if you think about it, that's sort of close to what the non-pre-mills say. They say, well, things are good, much better with the church here, but it doesn't mean they're perfect. 
All right, so Jesus will have returned pre-mill. He will actually physically be on the earth during the millennium, whereas that's on the pre-mill theory. On the non-pre-mill theory, Jesus is on the earth spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Pre-mills are split on exactly what this millennium looks like or how Jesus rules during this millennium. Classic historical pre-mills say that Jesus reigns on the earth through the church. Dispensational pre-mills say, say that Jesus reigns on the earth through Israel. Of the two errors, I would choose the classical historical pre-mill over the dispensational pre-mill for lots of reasons which I can't go into here. The same reasons that people traditionally raise against the false teaching of the dispensationalist. Now, I'm going to give you three basic arguments against premillennialism. And the first I call, where's the gap? Where's the thousand-year gap that the premills insist is between the resurrection of the just and the unjust? Now, here's how I've got to, I've got to tell you what the premills believe about that. Jesus comes back at the end of time. He then establishes a millennium. And then at the, and at the beginning of the millennium, when Jesus comes back, he raises the Christians from the dead. So there you have the first resurrection of the dead, a physical resurrection of Christians. And they go into the millennium glorified. At the end of the millennium, then the evil unchristians are raised from the dead. The unjust are raised from the dead. So, on the pre-mill theory, there is a gap of a thousand years between the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the Christians at the beginning of the millennium, and the resurrection of the bad guys, the unjust, at the end of the millennium. A thousand year gap. I am not misstating that. I am not setting up a straw man. This is absolutely down to the scintilla exactly what pre-mill people teach. Now, since they teach that, they are bound to believe that there's a thousand-year gap between those two resurrections. And so I'm going to look at the scriptures and ask you as I go through, where's the gap? You don't ever see it in the scripture. How about Daniel 12:2? Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, that's pre-mill, right? And some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Well, that's a thousand years later. Is there any thousand? Does Daniel tell us about the thousand years here? Some will awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Now, I will say it's logically possible that Daniel just didn't mention the thousand years. But really, I mean, do you really think that's likely? I mean, there's a difference between having a view that's possible and a view that's likely. A big difference. Matthew 13:30, let both grow together until the harvest. This is the wheat and the tares. Let both grow together until the harvest. The wheat, the Christians, the tares, the bad guys. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Gather the weeds first? Well, on the pre-mill theory... It's the good guys who are gathered first, pre-mill, and the bad guys who will burn up at the end. But according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's exactly backwards. The bad guys are gathered up first and burned, and then the wheat are gathered up second. Exactly backwards. Not to mention the fact there's no gap between the gathering up of the wheat and the tares. No gap. Where's the gap? Excuse me if I'm getting a little overwrought on this. Matthew 13:47. Let me mention here. You know, people say that your millennial theory isn't important. I had a job lined up with an, a pre-mill institution, Christian College, Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. They advertised for a business professor job. They were starting a new department there. And I looked at that job description, and by golly, I felt sorry for anybody I was competing with because I have never looked at a job description and had 100% of the qualifications and that I met them. I said, hot dog, man, this must be God showing me I need to move from China and come back to America and teach at this place. And so I emailed the, the dean of the business school, and I told him that I fit that stuff pretty good. And he said, yeah, yeah, man, why don't you come in and 
I want you to interview for the job. So they sent me the paperwork, and doggone, standard doctrinal statement, conservative orthodox doctrinal statement. Then they get down there, but you've got to believe in the pre-mill theory if you're going to teach at the school. So I wrote back, and I said, well, I, you know, I don't believe in that. I'm a, I'm a post-mill, but I don't really see how that's going to affect me teaching business in any way. Well, so the head of the business school contacts the head of the theology school who sends me a nice email telling me that it would violate the whole structure of that college, the whole vision of the founders of the college if they let somebody in there that taught pre-mill. I thought, yeah, so eschatology is not important. Huh? Pre-mill is not important. It's important enough for you to kick me, to, to deprive me of the opportunity to interview for that job. Now the dean was nice and let me give a guest lecture, and I came in, you know, that was all right. But still, and then I saw another advertisement for a job teaching at Talbot Seminary. Now, Talbot is more is different than Columbia uh, International University. It's a dispensationalist school. That's where the R.A. Torrey established that school. It used to be, um, well, the seminary is part of Biola College. Biola was Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and then it became a college. And I wasn't quite as qualified for that job as I was for the CIU job, but I was qualified enough to where I thought I might get an interview, so I sent my stuff in. Yep, they want to interview me. I say, good. So then they send me the package. Not only do I have to believe in the pre-mill theory, i got to believe in the pre-trib rapture theory, which I think is ludicrous. But again, I'm teaching business. I don't know what that's got to do. Pre-trib theory's got to do with teaching business with pre-mill. Oh, no. You're not going to apply. So maybe I get a little worked up over this, maybe. I don't know. Matthew 13, 47 through 30, 48. This is the parable of the dragnet. Again, we're looking at the issue of where's the gap between the two resurrections? the two pre-mill resurrections. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. Now again, that's talking about the ultimate fate of the Christians and the non-Christians. And according to the typical, view, the old view, the not, let's put it this way, the non-pre-mill view is there's a general resurrection of the just and the unjust at the same time at the end of time, and then Jesus comes back. Not a, not Jesus coming back, establishing a millennium, and then judging the bad guys. Well, I don't see any gap in Matthew 13, 47, 48. Gather the good fish, throw out the worthless ones. Doesn't that sound like that happens at the same time? Where's the gap? Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'm not going to read it all to you, but this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. That's the good guys. Verse 41 then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Those are the bad guys. Verse 46, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Doesn't that sound like the going away to punishment and to eternal life happens at the same time? I.e., at the general resurrection of the just and the unjust at the same time? Where's the gap? There's no gap there in the parable of sheep and the goats. John 5, 28 and 29. This is my favorite one. Jesus says this, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Now, this is obviously talking about physical resurrection here, because he mentions graves. Those who are in the graves will hear his voice. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So here we have a physical resurrection coming from the graves, and it is called the resurrection of life, the resurrection of condemnation. It's obviously at the same time. There's no thousand-year gap between the two. So how in the world pre-mills hold to their theory? I just don't understand it. Well, they can say, well, John just failed to mention it. Well, well, well. 
do not be amazed at this because a time is coming. Does that sound like a time that's split by a thousand years? A time, that's one time. Acts twenty four fifteen. This is Paul before Felix and Caesarea. After he came back, after he started the riot in Jerusalem at the end of his third journey, and he was arrested by the Romans for protection, he went to Caesarea to be tried before Felix. And this is what Paul tells Felix. I have the same hope in God as these men, talking about the Pharisees that were accusing him. I have the same hope that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Where's the gap? Why doesn't he say there will be a resurrection of the righteous and a thousand years later the wicked? That's never said. Romans 2, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Paul says this, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who seek for honor eternal life. So on that day of his wrath and revelation, that day, that one time, there are those who are going to be resurrected who seek for honor and eternal, and they're going to be resurrected to eternal life. That's the resurrection of the just. But to those who do not obey the truth, wrath and indignation. That's those who get sent to the eternal lake of fire. And Paul there makes it clear, because he's talking about a day. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day, the same day, the just and the unjust get their desserts. Where's the gap? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 24. Paul says this, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. All right, the key phrase to look at is in verse 23. Talking about resurrection, being made alive in verse 22, is talking about resurrection. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ, that's his resurrection in AD 30. He's the first fruits, and then afterward at his coming, that's him coming back at the end of time, those who belong to Christ. So verse 23 has the resurrection of the Christians. And then verse 24 says, then comes the end. Well, what happens at the end? That's the end of time when the unjust are thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of verse 23, the resurrection of the righteous, the Christians, and then at 24, then comes the end. That sounds like it comes right at the same time, right on the heels of at least. Well, here's how, pre- let me give you some defense, at least on this verse. I don't know how pre-meals defend the rest of the verse. So they just say, well, the scripture didn't mention it. Well, once again, Paul didn't mention it here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you got the resurrection of the Christians, then comes the end. No gap. Well, here's what pre-meals say. They say the end means the end of the resurrection of the unjust in the distant future. In other words, then comes the end in the distant future when the resurrection of the unjust will take place. Then comes the end after the thousand years. Now, they have some help with some translations. Some translations put will come in there to make it future. Then come, then the end will come. So it's saying it's just the future. Now, the American Standard Bible, the NIV, the New Living Bible, the Good News Bible, put the will come in there. Guess what? It ain't in there. It's not in the Greek. In fact, the Greek is then the end. That's what the Greek is, then the end. So the premills actually supply... A future tense will then the end will come, and not only do they supply a tense, they supply the verb itself because the Greek is then the end. So they supply a verb, then the end will future come. Will is the tense and come is the verb. Will come is not in the original. Here's how the American Standard Version translates it: Then bracket cometh the end. So then the end is then the Greek and the cometh. They add that in the brackets to show that they added it to the Greek. Now, here's some versions that do, don't put a future tense in there. They put a present tense in there. The ESV, the Holman Christian Study Bible, 
the New Revised Standard, the Revised Standard Version. Those versions say, then comes the end. Well, they supply a verb, but they don't put it in the future tense, present tense. So the resurrection of the saints, then comes the end. Where's the gap? The New King James, the King James puts, then cometh the end. That's the same thing with the old-fashioned English, but it basically supplies the verb, comes, but it puts the verb in the present tense, not the future. The Douay-Rand, the Catholic version, has afterwards the end, which I think is probably pretty close to it. Then the end. All right, so you see that the translation there does not favor the idea that there's a thousand-year gap for then. Then comes the end. There's no thousand-year gap between at the end of verse 23, those who belong to Christ are resurrected. 24, then comes the end. Where's the thousand-year gap? It's not there. So that's a pretty weak defense for pre-mills. Now, here's another defense. They say that Ada, which is then, can refer to a long interval of time as well as a short interval of time. Well, here's as Mr. Shirtley, he's, who writes good, a lot of good articles on the Internet. He said the Ada in the New Testament, I think his first name is Brian. The Ada in the New Testament never refers to a long period of time. There's 14 total instances of it, none of which refer to a long time. Now, here's some examples. 1 Timothy 2.12. It was Adam who was created, then Eve. Ata, Eve. Oh, really? There was a thousand years between the creation of Adam and Eve? 1 Timothy 3.10. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons. Oh, they're tested for a thousand years before they can become deacons? Come on, folks. And besides, there is a word that does mean a long period of time, epeta. Paul would have used that if he knows there's a thousand years there. Folks, there's no thousand years there. There's a general resurrection at the end of time of the just and the unjust and it happens at the same time. All right, let's continue on with this idea of where's the gap. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. And to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. Now, I'm going to assume a futurist interpretation of Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, which I don't believe. I believe I take that from a preterist viewpoint. But since pre-mills are futurists, they take that as futurists. So let's see if, they're cons- if this futurist interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, 8, 9, and 10 matches their pre-mill theory. First of all, it says on that day, that day when Jesus comes to be glorified by his saints. Well, it doesn't say that day with a thousand years between before he gets the bad guys. Now, we need to notice in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 2, there's two judgments in verse 8. When he, Jesus, takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God. All right, that happens on that day. That's the judgment of the bad guys. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction on that day. All right, so those bad guys that are judged. And then in verse 10, on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. So at the same time that the bad guys are being thrown in the flaming fire, on that same day, the saints are glorified. There's no thousand-year gap between the saints getting glorified, getting their reward at the end of at, at Jesus' return, and the bad guys getting their just resert, desserts at the, end of, at the end of Jesus. Now, one more point about Second Thessalonians 1, 7, and 10. Notice that in this verse, in these verses, Jesus is revealed from heaven, from heaven to punish unbelievers. In verse 7, we see this. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. So Jesus is coming from heaven to punish unbelievers. But pre-mills say that Jesus is already on the earth because he came 
pre-mill. He, his second advent was pre-mill. He came at the beginning of the millennium. He rules with the church or with Israel on earth all the way through the thousand years. And then at the end of the millennium, he judges the bad guys. But Paul says the bad guys are judged in the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven. How do pre-mills explain that one? And again, I don't that that discussion is assuming a futurist view of Second Thessalonians one seven through ten, which I don't believe, but which futurists do assume, and so I would like to know how they're consistent in their theology. All right, that was my first argument against the pre-mill theory and what I call the where's the gap arguments. The second argument is the resurrection on the last day, the last day argument. We look at some scriptures that emphasize last day, and I notice on the pre-mill view, the resurrection of the just does not occur on the last day. It occurs on the last day minus a thousand years or a thousand and seven years if you're pre-tribber. John 6, verses 39, 40, 44, and 54. Jesus speaking, he says this, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Well, the last day, a thousand years before the end of time, is the last day. I would think that the last day would be the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. But pre-mills say that we're raised at the beginning of the millennium. And John says that's the last day. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. The last day, give or take a thousand years or so? No. And the last day means at the end of time, along with the resurrection of the unjust. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Not the last day, except for a thousand years that come after us. Last day means last day. It means at the end, not a thousand years before the end, as the pre-mills would have us to erroneously believe. Verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John eleven twenty four. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Talking about Lazarus. Not the last day plus a thousand years. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51, part B, to verse 52. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Oh, last trumpet. Except for any trumpet that might blow a thousand years later, according to the pre-mill theory. All right, so that's my second argument, my second broadside against the pre-mill theory. The first being the where's the gap argument, the second being the last day argument, and now the third broadside against this erroneous, unfortunate view. Logical reasons why I have trouble believing the pre-mill view. The first reason is what I call the demographic argument. You are going to have, according to the pre-mill theory, of necessity, not and this the pre-mill theory leads ineluctably in, in to this conclusion. It has to be this way, that you're going to have married mortals living in the same society with unmarried, glorified saints. So, in other words, some people are going to be living like here on the earth, getting married, having babies, and other people are going to be in their glorified bodies, and they're all going to be living together in the same confused society. And I don't believe that. Well, let's see how that is. First of all, there's four possible categories of people in existence at Jesus' pre-mill second coming. He comes back to the earth. Well, there's the physically dead Christian. We know what's going to happen to him. He's going to be raised, glorified, and he enters the millennium, glorified and immortal. So he's in the millennium. Then there's going to be the Christian who's not dead when Jesus returns, not physically dead when Jesus returns, but he's physically alive. And so then Jesus transfigures him to an immortal body, changing the twinkling of an eye, like we know in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so then we have the physically alive Christian who goes into the millennium. So we got glorified Christians in the millennium now. Now, there's other people there 
on the earth when Jesus comes back on this pre-mill theory. You've got the physically dead unbeliever. Well, he doesn't enter the millennium at all. He stays in the grave because he's not resurrected when Jesus comes back, right? He stays in the grave all the way through the millennium. Then he gets resurrected at the end of the millennium and gets thrown into a lake of fire. So the physically dead unbeliever doesn't show up, doesn't live in the millennium. But now, this fourth category, the physically alive unbeliever. Jesus comes back. You got a bunch of people who don't believe in him. What happens to them? Well, they go straight into the millennium as mortal human beings. Jesus is at his pre-mill second coming doesn't transfigure the unbeliever because he's not a believer. So he remains mortal and he walks right into the millennium. And so there you have it. You got immortal Christians, either the ones that were resurrected or transfigured at Jesus' uh, pre-mill second advent coming. And then you got the unbelievers who didn't get resurrected and who didn't get transfigured, but who just walked right into the millennium because, well, I mean, Jesus isn't going to kill him, kill them all, is he? He's going to leave the dead unbelievers in the graves until the end of the millennium, but the alive unbelievers, he's not going to kill them. He's just going to let them go into the millennium. And so you've got immortal Christians. Let's look at the demographics of the millennium now, according to the pre-mill theory. You've got immortal Christians. They were either raised immortal or they were transfigured. They were raised immortal because they were deceased at the second coming, the pre-mill second coming, and they were transfigured if they were alive at the second coming. But either way, they end up being immortal and glorified in the millennium. And then you got mortal unbelievers. Those are the living, the living, not the dead, but the living unsaved people who enter the millennium after the second coming. They miss out on being transfigured because they weren't saved. And of course, the dead unbelievers miss the millennium altogether, so we're not worried about them. So basically, you end up with well, we're not finished yet. We got immortal Christians in the millennium. We got mortal unbelievers in the Christian, and then we got mortal Christians too, because there are going to be people, the unbelievers who who walk into the millennium at the second advent. Some of them are going to get saved because people are going to be preaching the gospel. All those mortal Christians. I mean, think about it. If you're an uh, an unsaved mortal Christian looking around at all the glorious resurrected saints, glorified saints, wouldn't you want that? So yeah, some of them are going to get saved but they're not going to be glorified. They're just going to be saved just like you and I are because the transfiguration already happened pre-mill time and they weren't saved then. And the final glorification of the saint, well, the saints are already glorified. They missed out on the transfiguration and glorification of the saints when Jesus came back in the beginning of the millennium. They got saved during the millennium, so they're just going to have to do with a mortal body. And I guess somewhere... Along the line, they're going to get glorified. Maybe at the very end, it's it's kind of fuzzy to me. I don't know how they figure that out in their system. I mean, do we really want to believe that? That sounds like comic book stuff to me. Second logical reason why I don't believe in a pre-mill theory is that that theory forces us to believe that some saints get jerked out of heaven and pushed back into a state of life where there's death. Do we really want to believe that? Well, what do I mean by this? Well, think about Jesus coming back before the millennium. They're saints that have already died, and their spirits are in heaven, right? They're in heaven. And so then they come back with Jesus, they accompany Jesus back to the earth, and then they rule with Jesus in the millennium. But there's death in the millennium, as I already showed you in Isaiah 65. There's death in the millennium. The one who does not live to a thousand years will be thought cursed, so there's death in the millennium. So they're in, the saints are in perfection in heaven, and now they go down to the millennium where things are not quite so perfect. Do we really want to believe that? Third logical argument against the pre-mill theory. Jesus ends up on the defensive. He's holed up in the camp of the saints, fighting a defensive war that he's about to lose and has to be rescued at the last minute. 
How do I know that? We'll drop down to Revelation 20, verses 8 through 10. Look at the battle of Gog and Magog, which happens at the end of the millennium. Now remember, Jesus is on the earth during the millennium. Let's read those verses. Satan will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So here you got the devil with one last battle against Jesus. Does that sound like King Jesus ruling with a rod of iron? As, as we know he does, as we've already showed in the millennium, he rules the world with a rod of iron. As a skeptic, what kind of a king is it that's holed up in a camp wait, worried about the devil coming out and surrounding the camp and putting the camp of the saints in extreme distress? That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. What? One other point about Jesus being in, on the defensive in this final battle of Gog and Magog, Jesus is glorified, right? He's ruling with glorified saints, except for those who get are mortal and got saved during the millennium, but most of the saints are glorified. Now, if this final battle of Gog and Magog is literal, how will the glorified Jesus and his glorified saints be threatened with mere bullets and bombs? They are immortal. They can't die. So what kind of a war is this going to be between Gog and Magog and the glorified saints on earth. One more logical twist, screw up, in the pre-mill theory. Well, enough of that. Let's go to the non-pre-mill theory, which I think is much more sensible. Here's the basic rough statement of the position. Again, I'm putting two types of non-pre-mills together, namely amills and post-mills. Here's the timing. you got the first advent. Jesus comes, AD 30. Well, actually... He died, let's put it this way. He came and then he died in AD 30. And then you have the millennium, the kingdom of God, the church, all the way between the first advent and then when Jesus comes at the second advent. Notice how clean this is, how much simpler it is. I, I love Occam's razor. If you've got a way to explain something that's simpler, take it. I've just showed you all the problems with the pre-mill theory. Well, this theory is a lot simpler and it's easier. And I suspect on that theory of parsimony that this theory is much more likely to be true than the pre-mill theory. Now, what's the nature of this millennium? First of all, it's symbolic. It's the inter-advent period between the first and second advent. And of course, it has to be more than a thousand years because it's symbolic. Now, what's the nature of this millennium? Well, it depends on what your view of the church age is. That depends on your non-premillennial view. Or if you're an amill, many of you will believe that the millennium is the church in heaven, not on earth. Some amills believe that the millennium, the millennium inter-advent period is the church on earth, but they tend to be somewhat pessimistic because they, a lot of Amels tend to be futurist. They don't have to be, but they tend to be futurist and they think all that all that great tribulation stuff didn't happen pre-80-70, but it happens at the very end of time. And so the church is having a rough time down here on earth. But at any rate, the nature of the millennium, like I say, it's the timing is easy in our advent, but the nature, if you're if you're Amil, it could either be that it's, it refers to the church in heaven or it could refer to the church on earth. And if it's on the church on earth, how positive or negative you go as to the prospects of the church on earth. There's a lot of room for maneuver in there. Now, the post mills, again, agree on the timing first between first and second advent, the timing of the millennium. But post mills are divided between left-wing post mills and right-wing post mills. Now, it's interesting to me. I am a post mill, but there are two very obnoxious theories to me, obnoxious doctrines that I despise that use the name post mill. And that's unfortunately from a, unfortunate for me from a marketing viewpoint. But left-wing post mills are the people that basically I call them liberals or, or progressives or leftist, Marxist, some of them. 
They believe that there are going to be cataclysmic, historical, political, and social events that happen at the end of time, and that's going to result in paradisical, parad, paradisical conditions on earth, conditions of paradise on earth. Jesus never returns to the earth. The church manages to bring this about. Assuming they're Christian left-wing postmills, the church just brings it about. We convert everybody, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. And we're going to get involved in politics. We're going to bring about the political kingdom of God on earth. Folks, that has led to more people being killed. Look at the French Revolution. Look at the Bolshevik Revolution. Look at Venezuela today. Look at the Chinese Revolution. Look at California. Look at Detroit. Look at all the idiots that have preached this stuff. Just give us the power, and we'll bring about the kingdom of God on earth. So, that's one view. And I, I just dismissed that out of hand. But then there are right-wing post mills, and they're split too because... Classical right-wing post-mills, well, all right-wing post-mills say this, there's not going to be a cataclysmic, historical, political, or social event happening at the end of the world to usher in the kingdom. What happens is the world is very gradually reduced from its bondage to corruption, never perfectly, but gradually improving, improving, and then Jesus comes back. So there will be a return to Jesus on the earth. Classical right-wing post-mills Classical right-wing post-mills say that the world has changed through gradual, the gradual leavening effect of the gospel. Reconstructionist theonomist right-wing post-mills say that the world has changed as the law of God is implemented politically and judicially. And that's the other theology or philosophy that I despise, Reconstructionism, dominion. I mean, I believe in dominion, but I don't believe in legalistic dominion. I'm a New Covenant theology guy. They want to put the law on people. They want to stone homosexuals. They want to and then when they don't want to stone homosexuals, they got to sit here and explain to me why some of the Mosaic Law is, is imposed upon non-Christians of the world, but some of it is not. And then they get themselves all balled up in the contradiction. So no, 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 no. We're not going to believe that Reconstructionist post-millennialism is the right way to go. Classical right-wing post-mill, that's the view that I take. The world has changed through the gradual leavening effect of the gospel. So we have the kingdom on kingdom of God is on earth. Well, Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, so it came on earth, and the kingdom of God is in heaven where saints are. Things will improve, not perfectly, but we'll have more peace, more health and sanitation, more prosperity. We'll have more of the knowledge of God as the church spreads. We'll have the number of Christians on earth will increase, but it ain't ever going to be perfect. Nobody knows how many people are going to get saved before Jesus decides to turn back, come back. Now let me give you a selected scripture supporting a non-millennialarian position, non-premill position. Daniel 2, 44 through 45. In the days of those kings, all right, we got to say what kings. Now, if you're familiar with Daniel, Daniel 2, 32 through 33, talks about the statue with the different metals. The head of the statue is pure gold. That's Babylon. It's just an orange with silver. That's Medo-Persia. It's stomach and thighs with bronze. That's Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdoms and the successor kingdoms. Its legs were iron. That's the Roman Empire. And its feet were partly iron, partly fired clay. That's the Roman Empire with all of its constituent nations. And then in the days of those kings, in other words, in the, in the reign that encompasses the time of those kings, which includes the Roman Empire, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's the church. It came during the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. And the kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all those kings and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. That's the eternal kingdom of God, the church. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. Crushed that statue, which are the four empires, worldly, satanic empires. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. In the days of those kings, will this eternal kingdom that will never go away, 
the the stone that smashes the uh, the the four metal statue that statue that the the stone the kingdom of God that smashes the demonic kingdoms happens when in the days of those kings not two thousand plus years in the future. Well, if the church is the millennium and it starts in the days of those kings during the time of the Roman Empire, that sort of does away with the idea that the millennium doesn't start until the very end of time. Now, I guess a pre-mill could say, well, yeah, but the kingdom of God starts, but it's not really the millennium. You know, you can make distinctions like that. So this scripture is not a slam dunk against their position, but it is a strong indication to me that the kingdom of God was started when the Roman Empire went down because that's when the stone hit the feet of clay and iron. Now, having gone through all the millennial theories, which is quite a job, we've come to the last part of verse 3. Now, this is a very interesting thing. John says in verse 3, Revelation 20, until the thousand years were completed, after these things he must be released for a short time. The devil's bound, thousand years, and then the devil is released for a short time. Now, if you're a pre-mill, then that's just the big battle, the Gog and Magog battle, then the millennium, and that's so far in the future we can speculate on that. But if you're a non-pre-mill, that means at the very end of the church age, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be some fighting with the devil. Now, I read one time Gary North who is a, unfortunately, a Reconstructionist, but he's post-mill. And he was trying to speculate on this, and he said that God has decided to let the devil show himself one last time, to show himself how evil he is, to show that he is opposed to God's people and opposed to God's kingdom. He's going to stick his head out one more time so God can smash it. And so that there's a little punctuation point, a punctuation mark at the end of history, and the devil is kaputsky. I like that. I still remember reading that. I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. But at any rate, that's what's going to happen. The devil will begin deceiving and warring again at the end of history, according to Revelation 23. And of course, I've already read this. This happens in the Gog and Magog battles 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. I'm going to talk about Gog and Magog in the next chapter. Everybody loves talking about Gog and Magog. Now, David Chilton has a speculation about this sort of enigmatic verse at the end of verse 3, phrase at the end of verse 3. God delays Satan's release till the end of the millennium to give the church long enough to have things under control. If God turned the fires of judgment on the, on the world too soon, he would destroy the bread along with the yeast. He would destroy the bread, meaning the world, along with the yeast, the church. That's always a tricky business how God has got to judge evil without destroying the church because we're in this world, you know, and it's... I mean, people talk about it now. The judgment of God is on America for our manifest sins. Well, is God going to protect the church? Oh, yeah, he'll protect the church. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he will do it. He did it with the Christians in, who escaped the Pella from the abomination that caused the desolation in AD 66 when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and Jesus, and they left Jerusalem just like Jesus told them to, and they went to Pella. How about Noah when he, he and his righteous family were saved in the ark when the flood came? How about the Israelites in Israel? When they escaped from Pharaoh in the Exodus, how about Lot when he escaped from Sodom, when judgment came on Sodom? God loves to deliver his people from judgment and likes to do, judge, and likes to do judgment too. But this idea here is if you're going to have spiritual progress as more and more people get saved, at some point you've got to have things under control. You've got to be really strong when the final blast comes and the devil is destroyed. That's an interesting speculation. I don't know whether it's right or not, of course, because this is all... Now, preterists are just like the futurists. We have to speculate about what's going to happen at the end of the church age. 
Whereas the future is speculated about what's going to happen at the end of the millennium. But we're still speculating about the future, and it's hard to speculate about the future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to have to stop it right there. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. In our next audio, we'll take up Revelation 24, 5, and 6, and we'll talk about the first death, the second death, first resurrection, second resurrection, some more hard stuff. Hope you stay tuned for that theology. Hope you enjoyed this audio. See you next time.